So recently I, I, I heard a story, and I, I tried to find where the story came from, and it sounds like it might have been Dartmouth University back in the early 90s, but it's a story about the psychology department decided to bring in a, a, a large group of people, and and they brought in this group of people, and, and, and they had this, the, these trained professional makeup artists on site. And, and the makeup artists, they, they came and, and, and kind of worked on them a little bit and made them look beautiful. But before they were done, they did one final thing. And the last thing that they did is the makeup artists made a very realistic, what they called a, a hideous scar on the side of everybody's face. And then they allowed the, the participants in the study to kind of just mingle together, to spend some time together, to, to see how each other was looking and different things. But, but after a bit more time had passed, and after maybe they'd become a little bit more comfortable with what was on their face, they, they, they one by one brought them back into the makeup artist before they sent them out into the real world. And the makeup artist just said, hey, I just want to touch things up just to make sure that everything is good. They were told that the study was going to see what, what, what was being had to see how people would respond to beautiful people who had a blemish. And so one by one, the makeup artist brought them in and, 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 and they began to work on them and they began to, you know, touch them up to make them look exactly how they wanted them to look. But, but the very last thing that the makeup artist did before they sent them out into the real world is they removed the scar from their face without the participants knowing. And so they left that room and they went out into the real world thinking that they still had this, what again, they called a hideous scar on the side of their face. And it's, a, it's amazing. They, they spent a couple of hours out and about and, and then they came in and the, the, the people who were doing the study, they just simply asked them the question, how did people respond to you? And this is what they said. They said that, that people were more rude to me than I've ever seen before. They said that they, they, perceived, they, they, they perceived that they received more judgmental looks than what they had ever received before. They said that they felt like that people were avoiding them. And listen, they said that they felt like people were staring at their scar that was no longer there. Our identity, who we see ourselves to be, shapes the way that we see ourselves and it also shapes the way that we see others. And this is why this is so important. So often in our lives, the truest thing about you is not how you see you. So often the truest thing about you is not the way that you feel. So often the truest thing about you is it, 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 it is not how smart you perceive yourself to be or, or how smart you think others perceive you to be. So often the, the, the truest thing about you is not whether you have six or seven zeros in your bank account or whether you just have one. So often the truest thing about you is not the sexual desires that you feel need to be met in your own life. So often the truest thing about you is not how people see you. The truest thing about you is this. The truest thing about you is who God says you are. 
And in the introduction of of this letter to the Romans, Paul is communicating to this group of Roman Christians exactly how they should see themselves. If you remember last week, we kicked off this series, and if you missed it um, in in this your first week here, I hope that you can enjoy the book of Romans because we're going to be in it about 37 weeks this year. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in it, and I can't wait to dive into it. But we kicked off the series last week just looking at a lot of the background surrounding Rome and the church in Rome. And we talked a lot about the importance of this letter and the history of this letter within the church. But we also spent a little bit of time looking at the first seven verses that Paul writes to the Romans. And and he kicked off this letter by simply saying that I, Paul, am a servant. A more appropriate translation would be I, Paul, am a slave to Christ. In a culture that elevates prestige and, and honor, Paul went the complete opposite direction. The reason he did this, his point was, I'm not writing you because of what I have accomplished, but I'm writing you because of what Jesus has done for me. In those first seven verses, the Apostle Paul, he goes on and he, 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 he kind of Uh, talks about the idea of faith and obedience and and the way that faith and obedience must go together. We put it like this, faith, if genuine, always has obedience as its outcome. Obedience, if it is to please God, must always be accompanied by faith. And and you can look through all Paul's writings, 13, 14 letters in the New Testament, and you will find this same idea of faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience brought up again and again and again. But last week we left off with Paul speaking to the identity of this group of Roman believers. And so we're going to look real quick at that last verse that we looked at last week. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, it says this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I want to remind you, this this group, this church that Paul is writing to, They have experienced such a whirlwind the past handful of years. The Jews in in 49 AD, as this is being written in around 56 or 57 AD, the Jews in 49 AD at the command of Emperor, Emperor Claudius were all forced to leave Rome. And, and now they've all begun to make their way back in that Claudius was, was out of, out of, out of control or no longer in control. But whenever they come back, they come back to a much different church and a much different culture. The, the, the Jews had always been the leaders in the church, but as soon as they left, the Gentiles had to step up and, and accept those leadership positions. And having enough pass by to where, to where possibly, you know, some of the things that, 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 that you know, were, were part of the Jewish culture, you know, maybe, maybe they weren't quite emphasized as, as much as, as they were previously, but now the Jews are coming back in and they're all trying to figure out how they can work together? How can they get along together? And all the while they're having this internal conflict, there's, always, there, there's also this external conflict that's, that's taking place because the Roman Christians were, were literally some of the biggest outcasts in Rome. The, Rome was a very polytheistic culture, and, 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 and the, the Christians in that time, the followers of the way, the Jesus followers, those who were the very first believers after the resurrection of Jesus, they were actually known as atheists, in Rome, because of how few gods they believed in. But so, so you have this group of believers who are saying, no, we don't believe in all these other gods. We believe that there is one God, one true God, who made a way for all humanity back to himself through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. 
And so Paul tells them, this is who you are. I am writing to you who are loved by God. Do you understand the magnitude, the the difference that it could make in our lives if we truly would grasp the fact that the creator of the universe is madly in love with us? And so Paul, he says, you are you, you are loved by God. Yes, 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 you. You are loved by God, but not only are you loved by God, but you also are called by God. One of the things that I appreciate so much about this section of Scripture and, and Paul's writing to the Romans is, is that you can see the, the Paul's pastor's heart like just start shining through. He continues to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that there are many prayers that that just all across the globe, the pastors will pray for the churches that they love and they serve. And, and, and I would imagine that one of the prayers that is always on the lips of pastors is for, for the people that they love to experience grace, to experience peace. And in verse 8, Paul continues, and he says, first, and I just want you to know, in case you're trying to read ahead, you can See, Paul say first, but you will never find a second or a third. So I don't know if Paul just got distracted, if he kind of got caught up in what he was saying, or if this is just like, no, 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 no. I want you to understand, like, this is of first importance here. There's no need for a second or a third. This is the first thing he says first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. What a beautiful thing. I had the opportunity to meet with a group of pastors this past, th- th- this past week from kind of, you know, just the metro east and, and southern Illinois. And, and, and it, it, it's so fun because they hear about things that are happening at LeClaire. And it's just a cool thing to know that, 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 that the faith, that, that, that maybe our faith is making its way beyond just this building and, and, and these doors. But what a beautiful reputation to have. Your faith has been, it, it is known all over the known world. I imagine that Paul wasn't shy about his desire to go to Rome. He, he constantly, you know, he tells the Roman Christians that he, he's always wanted to make his way there. So I wouldn't be surprised as he's on his other missionary journeys if he's kind of telling these people, yeah, this is my plan. This is where I'm going, you know, God willing. And, and eventually I want to make my way to Rome. And every time he brings up Rome, they bring up the faith. Those who, who know some of the people there, they bring up the faith of the Christians there. Verse 9 says, God, whom... I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son. There's that gospel word again, is my witness. How I constantly remember you. So I know that we're not supposed to swear. I know that we're supposed to just let our yes be yes and our no be no. But Paul says, in this situation, I want to make it extra clear to you. Like, I really am constantly praying for you. And, and I, I, I tell you this by the preaching of the gospel. My, that, that is my witness. The God of the gospel is, is my witness and how I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now... At last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Again, Paul has desperately wanted to make it to Rome, but he just hasn't been able to make it there quite yet. So he continues, I long to see you that I may impart to you some of the spiritual gifts to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged. I don't know if there's a better phrase that should describe the church of Jesus Christ than the phrase mutually encouraged. By each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented to do so until now, 
in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. And like I said, Paul's pastor's heart, it is shining in this text. And, and there are really three areas that I want to highlight with us this morning, I want, that, that I want to encourage us this morning, as, as Paul is writing in the context of relationship. I want us to look at, at what it is that Paul is doing for these Christians in Rome. And I want us to try and figure out, how can we apply these same things to our relationships with one another? How can we apply these things, same, same ideas to, to our relationships with, with, with our family? How can we apply these same ideas to, to maybe those that we know that we should love, but we really struggle to love? Like, like how do we apply this? And, and the first area that I want to highlight is, is, is prayer, is prayer. Paul's prayers were full of thanksgiving. They were full of gratitude. They were full of encouragement. Not, but not only were they full of these things, Paul's prayers were always, also consistent. His prayers were, were constant. Paul believed, as I know many of you believe, that prayer changes things. That prayer can change relationships. And so if I may, I would like to challenge you with something this morning. I want you to think about three, maybe five, maybe ten people in your life. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't know them. Maybe it's a, a, a group of people. Maybe it's a, 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 you know, students at a school. Maybe it's government officials. Maybe it's your neighbor that, you know, has never returned your weed eater. I don't know what it is, but... But I want you to think of three or five, maybe ten people or groups of people. And I want you to commit to praying for them every day for the rest of 2024. Because here's what I believe. I believe prayer changes things. And I believe that your prayers for them will will not only impact them, but it will also impact you. If you are bold enough to pray for somebody that you know you should love, but you struggle to love, maybe you're related to them. Maybe you gave birth to them. Maybe you stood on a stage and said, I do to them. If you would take the time to pray for them, your prayers will impact you and them. The way that you see them will begin to change. Your patience with them will begin to change. Your willingness to forgive them will begin to change. Why? Because your heart will begin to change. So who is it? Who is it that you need to pray for? Who is it that every day you need to pray for? I want you to take out the bulletin. I want you to take out your phone, open up the notes app, do whatever you need to do, but just start writing down some names. Who do you need to pray for? Write the names down, make it a habit. Pray full of thanksgiving, full of gratitude, full of encouragement, and pray consistently and constantly. And then the second area that Paul highlights is the area of presence. Presence. He's not talking about proximity. 
He's not saying, I want to go to Rome and be around the Roman Christians so that way I can say I've been to Rome and I've been around the Roman Christians. That's not his goal here. He's not, he, he doesn't simply want to be near people. He wants to truly be with people. Kyle Eidelman, he's a pastor of Southeast Christian Church, and he tells probably one of the most relatable stories that I have ever heard. He said that one night several years ago, whenever his, his daughters were a little bit younger, they had a family game night, and they decided to basically play charades. I don't know what it is that they called it, but he said more or less it, it was just charades and, 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 and a little bit of a homemade game of charades. And so one of his daughters, his middle daughter, they, she, she went and she drew something out of the hat that she was supposed to act out. And she drew on, on, on her piece of paper, it, it just said the word dad. And so, to act out dad, she did this. She went. And everybody in the family said, dad! And everybody laughed and thought it was so funny. And Kyle called a timeout because he needed to get away. I've been there. I remember a time whenever Whitley, my oldest, was pretty young, and I went into her and I said, Hey, you know Dad loves you, right? She's probably five years old or so, and maybe three. And she goes, she goes, No. And I lost it. I lost it because there was already so much guilt within me that just seeing that was like, I, my daughter's three and I've already blown it, you know? Like, I got no chance here. We're not talking about proximity. I can sit in a room with my family. You can sit in a room with your family, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about true and genuine presence. And I believe that there's a strong, a strong connection between prayer and in presence, that you feel closer to people when you pray for people. But I love this. Paul makes it clear that he doesn't simply want to be near these Roman believers, but instead he wants to be with these Roman believers. He wants to know them. He wants to hear them. He wants to encourage them. And he wants to be encouraged by them. In verse 12, Paul, he talked about the idea of mutual encouragement, being mutually encouraged. And one of the things that, that makes the church so vital and one of the things that makes the church so beautiful is this idea of mutual encouragement. And I know that it is so easy to, to just think, well, well, I come to church and I come and I sit in a room and I sing some songs and I listen to a guy talk and, and then I get out and hope that I beat the crowd to lunch. But, but that is not what the church is here for. That's not the purpose of the church. And if that's what your idea of the church is, is just a service, that is not the church. That is a service. It's a time to hear people sing songs. It's a time to listen to some guy with a microphone on his face talk. But, but it is not the church. You do not simply show up to church just so you can be filled. You show up to church because you never know what person needs to see you there. You never know what just that little bit of encouragement, that simple hi, that, that, that wave, the, the, the hug, the, the hey, you know, how, how is this? How, how, how's your mom doing? All that stuff. You never know how those tiny little conversations that you may feel are so insignificant can truly matter to another person in the body of Christ. You don't come to church just for you. 
But the church exists so we can be mutually encouraged. Paul is saying, I, 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 I can't wait to see you and encourage you, but just as much, I can't wait to see you and be encouraged by you. Just think about it. What would it look like if in our relationships with one another, we were committed to encouraging one another and seeing each other grow in their relationship with Jesus? The third area that I want to highlight today is just simply Paul's purpose. In the next few verses, Paul gives us the entire purpose for why he does what he does, for why he's traveled so many miles, and for why he so desperately wants to make his way to Rome. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. He says, I am obligated. In other words, I am in debt. Like, like I owe something to these people. Well, why would Paul say that he is obligated? What does Paul owe them? Paul believed in his calling so much that his job was to take the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that he could, that there is not a single person on the planet that the Apostle Paul did not feel obligated to take that message to. That's an incredible passion right there, church. There was nobody that he did not feel so. So he says, I am, I am obligated because of my calling. I owe it to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to both wise and foolish. That is why I am so eager, like I cannot wait. I am full of anticipation. Why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul has been commissioned to preach God's gospel. This is not Paul's gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of what Jesus did, the perfect life that he lived his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his church. And it's this gospel, it's this gospel that leads Paul to give what many consider to be the foundational verse of this entire letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And that's not a matter of importance. That's just simply a matter of chronology. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I love that. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. So why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? This is so huge for us, church. I'm going to give you three things real quick, okay? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? The very first one is because the gospel is good news. Why would anybody ever be ashamed of good news? Can, can, can you imagine a, a doctor who, who comes up with a way to cure all the cancers in the world? And they have it, and, and they're just like, yeah, I, I would tell you about it, but I'm kind of embarrassed. He's not ashamed because the gospel is good news. And it's through the good news that God unleashes a power to change people. When people respond in faith to the gospel message, God justifies them. He, he declares them innocent, tearing down the walls that exist between humanity and their natural, in their natural state and a holy God. Everything in the Christian life flows from 
the good news. And so don't be ashamed of the good news. The second thing is this, is there's another reason why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. Don't mistake it. It's an, it's an invitation that must be accepted through, through faith, but, but the invitation is for everyone. It's not like, you know, you remember in grade school where, where maybe you know, we're coming up on Valentine's Day and, and, and maybe you had those Valentines that you're supposed to go get put in every kid's box and and I mean, whenever many of us were kids, I'm sure that now there are all kinds of rules that you better have a valentine for every single kid or you're going to detention. But whenever we were kids, it was like, is there somebody that you have eyes for? Somebody you think looks really nice, you know? Well, I'm going to go ahead and put a, I'm going to put a little extra special valentine in, in their box, you know, and, and, and maybe, you know, it's a party that you get invited to and but, but, but your friends didn't get invited to the party, and, and, and so it's like, you know, I, I, I don't want to talk about this party. It's not that I'm not excited about the party, but, but I don't want to talk about it because I feel bad for my friend who wasn't invited. That's not the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single person has been invited to accept the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no reason to hold it back. The person that you think of, that, man, God would never be able to save them. Jesus died for them just as much as he died for you. Paul says the good news is available to everyone. Paul's evangelism strategy seems to have two great motivations. He has this simple sense of obligation derived from what God has done for him and commissioned him to do for others. Then he also has a desire that God would be glorified by as many people as possible. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world. Not like, so God so loved the eastern hemisphere. For God so loved the western hemisphere. For, for God so loved those who live north of the equator. For God so loved those who live south. No, no, no. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel, the work of Jesus, is God's plan to bring salvation to a lost and a broken and a dying world. The third reason why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is not a conduit to the power of God. It's not that the gospel leads to the power of God. It's not that the gospel is a form of the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And this is such a key to us grasping our identity as Jesus' followers, that God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. So many of us spend our lives feeling as though we don't measure up. But kids, we have a brother or a sister who's just a little bit smarter than us, who's just a little bit better at sports than us. It always seems like, like you know, you had that older assembly that they just roll, you know, they, 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 they raised the bar so high and you just were never able to quite measure up. We, we, we have that at work to where we work our tails off and we feel like that we're working just as hard, if not harder than everybody else. But whenever it comes time to a promotion, somebody else always seems to get recognized before we do. We have it in our marriage to where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. I just never feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like that I'm, I'm doing enough. There's nothing that I can do to, to make you happy. We, 
We have it even in silly things like our yards. You know, you have that person down the street that has all the checkers and stuff like that in their grass. And it's like, how in the world do you even do that? You know, like, I, 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 don't under, I don't understand. Last week, we, we, we briefly talked about this 16th century monk by the name of Martin Luther. And this was a man who, who just could not grasp how he could me- measure up to the standard of a holy God. And so Luther, he looked everywhere in his life in the confines of his monastery. To, he, he tried to figure out any way that he could to satisfy the demands of God's law. Yet in everything that he tried, he continued to come up without any peace. He was an expert in God's law. And every day, yet, yet every day he lived in terror as he looked in the mirror of the law and he put it up against his own life and then seeing God's righteousness. But eventually Luther would say that he would see the doors of salvation swing open and he would walk through. It is for this reason that Luther would one day boldly stand against kings and church officials. It's for this reason that that Luther would refuse to compromise because once he had tasted the gospel of Jesus Christ and once he had been delivered from the pains of torment from the law, there was no way he was going to let anybody take it from him. He was not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. Christians so often struggle to to think of themselves as worthy to be in a relationship with God. And, And if that's where you are today, you must understand this truth. We, in and of ourselves, will never be able to make ourselves worthy. Not the best one of us. Our sin is far too deep and far too dark. But this is why the gospel is precisely good news. Because it announces that God, through Jesus, made a way and accepts us anyway. All that we have to do is to receive his invitation in faith. It's this justification that reminds us that our standing with God is by grace. And through it, the righteousness of God becomes ours. It's the power of God put on full display for the world to see. So I want to do something today as we close out this message. And I'm not the kind of preacher who just oftentimes wants to make you uncomfortable. I feel like that's the Holy Spirit's job. But I'm willing to make you guys a little uncomfortable today. Because I want us to practice not being ashamed of the gospel. Your story is your greatest opportunity to not be ashamed of the gospel in your life. Your story is your greatest opportunity to point people to Jesus and to shine on the glory of God. I know that this could be uncomfortable, but if we are going to be unashamed out in the world, well, then we should surely be willing to be unashamed in here. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we also know that while the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life. And and we know through the work of Christ that his righteousness becomes ours. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to read off a a, a series of, of possibilities. And if any of these possibilities are true of you, I'm going to ask that you would just Quietly, just stand where you are. I know that it's hard to let people know 
I'm not perfect. But being willing to admit that you're not perfect is a big part of being unashamed of the gospel. And so, if you end up standing, maybe I say something else that that you're like, yeah, that's me too. Would you be willing to then raise a hand? And if there's another one, would you maybe be willing to raise another hand? Can we do this today? Let's practice not being ashamed of the gospel. If at some point in your life you have been saved from addiction, any kind of addiction, something had a stronghold on you that no longer has a stronghold on you, would you go ahead and stand? If at some point in your marriage things just were not going well and and, and you find yourself here today and you are still married and, and God is still working in your marriage, would, even if you don't know how you got here, would you be willing to stand today? Maybe today you've had children in your life that you have prayed for again and again and again that at some point they had ran so, so far away. They were making so many mistakes. They were, maybe they would be standing here up, you know, about, about the addiction. But, but, but in some way, shape, or form, your children have been saved. Would you be willing to stand? Maybe you have faced something just incredibly difficult in your life, a sickness, a family sickness. Something that, that it's just like, I, 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 I can't handle this. Like, I, I don't know what to do, but yet through it all, you're still standing. Would you be willing to stand or raise a hand? Maybe at some point in your life, if at any point in your life you have struggled with depression or anxiety, and it's not that you're perfect, it's not that you still don't still have those feelings from time to time, but you have hope today and you have light in the midst of darkness. If that's you, would you be willing to stand or raise a hand? If you've been saved from a lack of meaning, like you're, 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 you're chasing after things that are only trivial in this world, things that will not last, things that will rust and fade away, but you've been saved by that and you've been given a new purpose and a new calling through the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you please stand? If you've been saved from the weight of religion, this idea that it's up to you to measure up to the glorious standard of God. But you know that you just can't, that, that, that there's nothing that you could do to measure up and you've been saved from that weight and you have come to know that you are only able to be clean and free because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you please stand? If you have been saved from guilt, and shame, and anger, and unforgiveness, if you have been saved from your past, if you have been freed from the chains that we so often carry among ourselves, would you please stand or raise a hand?
for the gospel. It's the righteousness of God revealed. Church, right now, look around and see the righteousness of God revealed. We will not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Father in heaven, I thank you for today and I thank you for the way that you work in our lives. And God, I just pray that you will help us to take this boldness that we have in this moment and to carry it with us out into the world that we will live lives not ashamed of your gospel because it is good news, because it is available to everyone, because it is the power of God. And I thank you for the way that you have worked in our lives and for the way that you will continue to work in our lives. Jesus, open our eyes to the things that you have done. Move in us and use us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Right now, we're going to move into our time of invitation. If you miss